Let me read our passage for today, Job chapter 28, and then we will continue in, our, uh, in, in hearing the word of God. Job chapter 28, this is the word of God. Surely there is a mine for silver and a place for gold that they refine. Iron is taken out of the earth and copper is smelted from the ore. Man puts an end to darkness and searches out to the farthest limit, the ore in gloom and deep darkness. He opens shafts in a valley away from where anyone lives. They are forgotten by travelers. They hang in the air far away from mankind. They swing to and fro. And for the earth out of it comes bread, but underneath it is turned up as by fire. Its stones are the place of sapphires, and it's, it has dust of gold. That path no bird of prey knows, and the falcon's eye has not seen it. The proud beasts have not trodden it. The lion has not passed over it. Man puts his hand to the flint, flinty rock and overturns mountains by the roots. He cuts out channels in the rocks, and his eye sees every precious thing. He dams up the streams so that they do not trickle, and the thing that is hidden he brings out to light. But where shall wisdom be found, and where is the place of understanding? Man does not know its worth, and it is not found in the land of the living. The deep says, it is not in me, and the sea says, it is not with me. It cannot be bought for gold, and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of Ophir and the precious onyx of sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it nor can it be exchanged for jewels or fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? And where is the place of understanding? It is hidden from the eyes of all living and concealed from the birds of the air. Abandon and death, Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. God understands the way to it and he knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to turn away from evil is understanding. Thus says, the Lord. Let us pray for the preaching of God's word. Father in heaven, we admit to you that uh, we are foolish, limited creatures, Lord, and our hearts are prone to wander. But you and your boundless grace, you give us wisdom through your word. And Lord, as your servant tries to teach your word this morning, Lord, I pray that you can send your Holy Spirit to guide our hearts this morning that you may write your laws in our hearts, and that we may have wisdom and, and see you and glorify you all the more. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. When we experience great sadness and suffering, one of the most natural things for us to ask is, why is this happening to me? Now, biblically speaking, when we ask this why question, we are looking for wisdom. Before we went to lockdown, the church finished a series on the book of James, and we mentioned then that the biblical understanding of wisdom is not so much to do with having information, but more with skill and situational awareness. I've been watching this uh, great documentary series on Netflix about Michael Jordan called The Last Dance. And in the documentary, when we hear his contemporaries, fellow basketball players, talk about him, they said that he just knew how to win a game of basketball. 
that he was on another level. It's almost like he was playing a different game. And somehow he always knew when to pass, when to shoot, who to pass to, what shot to take, so that by the end of the game, he will win. It's like he had this transcendent awareness of what was going on on the court, such that he always knew what to do to win. So in the biblical definition, Michael Jordan had wisdom in the game of basketball. But why do we seek wisdom when something tragic happens to us? I think we've all experienced that when we don't have wisdom and we don't completely realize or aware of what we're going on and, or, and prepared for it, we naturally get restless, right? And we start feeling anxiety and fear, especially if we notice things starting to take a turn for the worst. Now, this is amplified exponentially when we encounter grief and suffering. We want to know the reasons for why we're suffering, if we've done anything to deserve it, if it's somehow our fault. So we seek wisdom to know what to do so we can adjust our lives accordingly to prevent ourselves from suffering this way again, to understand the causes, to prevent and manage the effects. And as Christians, great suffering can really mess with our understanding of God, right? Who we're told is perfectly just and loving because if we believe that God is really in control of all things and he totally loves us, when tragedy strikes, we'd understandably ask, how could such a God who loves me allow someone who he loves to experience such pain and misery? We want wisdom to understand God's logic, where God is going with all of this, so that we can have the peace in knowing that the suffering that we experience is not completely senseless and meaningless, so that we can assure ourselves that God does love us and he does have a good plan for us. In other words, we seek wisdom because it's unnatural and counterintuitive for us to feel at rest with a good plan when we don't know what the plan is or exactly how it's going to work out. And without, and without wisdom, this fear and anxiety can turn into despair in the midst of tragedy, whereby we're just defeated by, um, by our situation. And we say to ourselves, I'm just a sad person. The world is just hopeless. My life is just bad and sad, and I simply have to live with the fact that I'm going to suffer in this way and I'm going to feel this way till God knows how long. So how? How do we find wisdom and prevent ourselves to slipping into despair? Especially at a time like this when the world looks like it's falling apart and the people around us are grieving and falling into despair. So the passage that we'll be uh, meditating on today, Job 28, speaks into this. But first, some background, right? So if you recall in the book of Job, we know that God allowed Satan to test Job by bringing upon him unspeakable sadness and suffering. He lost everything, his health, his wealth, um, his children. He even has marital problems now. And Job is understandably broken by this, and he was mourning intensely. Then three of his friends came around to comfort him. But they did a pretty bad job at this, right? We see from chapter 327, this back and forth between Job and his friends that was supposed to be their attempt at comforting him. What it ended up being is an argument between Job and his friends as they were trying to make sense of what was going on with Job, what happened to Job. The friends argued, on the one hand, God is just. Therefore, he must operate on the strict principle of retribution, meaning that if you do good, good things will happen, and if you do evil, evil will happen to you. Therefore, Job must have done something wrong such that God would punish him through suffering. On the other hand, Job argues he's innocent. So what happened to him cannot be divine punishment. Therefore, either God does not operate on the strict principle of retribution or God isn't actually just. And this back and forth went on for a while until we get to chapter 28. Right? Uh, if you look closely in Job 27, Job was speaking 
And then later, in Job 29.31, we see Job resume speaking, as if he stopped in the middle. And in chapter 29:31, we finally see Job break, where he's blinded by self-righteousness and has become completely dumbfounded and miserable. And Job ends up demanding that God himself gives him an answer at the end of chapter 31. Chapter 28 sticks out because it doesn't seem like it has anything to do with what came before or after, and the subject matter and the tone of the chapter is completely different from what Job and his friends were talking about before. So most biblical scholars agree that this chapter is a poem, and it serves as an interlude that's inserted by the narrator. It's like the narrator hit the pause button and, g uh, and gave us a poetic commentary on what was going on from chapters 3 to 37. And here, the narrator poetically describes what essentially Job and his friends were doing in their discussion. They were seeking wisdom, and it reveals why they didn't find it and where they should have looked. How does Nehra do this? Let's get into it. We can observe there are three things that is highlighted in chapter 28, or three points. One, humanity's incredible abilities. Two, wisdom's unsearchable home. Three, God's inscrutable wisdom. One, humanity's incredible abilities. Two, wisdom's unsearchable home. And three, God's inscrutable wisdom. Point one, humanity's incredible abilities. In verses 1 to 11, this poem begins by affirming that we humans are capable of some truly amazing things. And the author illustrates this by using the example of ancient mining. The author marvels at how we're able to dig into the ground and find metals like gold, silver, and copper, and then smith it into actual metals that, that's usable. How we can go into the middle of nowhere, dig mines that descend deep into the darkness, use light to search the dark, and from some dirt and rocks, find precious metals and beautiful hidden gems. This shows for the author that we are superior to even the most majestic animals. How even the falcon, who has better vision than we do, can't find the things that we can find. How even the lion, who is physically stronger than we are, the king of the jungle, cannot go where we can go. It also shows how truly unique is our ability to creatively manipulate the environment around us, to extract hidden treasures from beneath the earth, how we can overturn mountains, dam up rivers, and redirect them, and make the earth give us what we want from it. And that is just one example of what humans are capable of. At that point in history, mining was considered to be a really technologically advanced industry. But imagine if the author lived today. Right? He would have so much more to marvel at. Think of the things, the incredible things that humans are able to do and have created today. The internet, space travel, nuclear weapons, satellites, Modern Medicine, Amazon, Gojek. We could go on all day just marveling at what humans have accomplished and are able to do now. And we're not done yet. There is so much more that the human race is still able to accomplish. This is why I find it really hard to believe that humans are simply highly evolved animals. I went to a zoo once and uh, around the chimpanzee enclosure, there were facts about the animal. And the most highlighted fact about the chimpanzee is that it shares 98% of its DNA with humans. And it goes on to talk about how they're so similar to us, like how chimpanzees can use tools too, that they can use a stick to pick up some bugs off the ground so they can eat the bugs. And it goes so far as to call chimpanzees our distant cousins. Though you might confuse some of your cousins for chimpanzees, it's hard to deny that there is a vast disparity between humans and other animals, even the most similar ones. And if all there is in the universe is really just the physical and material, then the 2% makes a really, really big difference. 
But the biblical worldview can account for this. In page one of the Bible, we are told that like animals, we're made from dust. That's why we see uh, these similarities. But we're also created in the image of God. And part of what this means is that we have been infused with creative potential like God. We're nowhere near God's level, but it's still true that humans possess the intelligence and creativity to produce innovation, civilization, culture, art, and beauty that is above and beyond what any other creature is capable of. And this is because this is exactly why humans were placed on earth in the first place, to replenish the earth and subdue it, to manage and nurture creation so that it produces good, to imitate our creator who created all things out of nothing and declared that it was good. So there's no doubt that humans are truly remarkable creatures who are capable of incredible things. But though we are images of God, despite everything we've accomplished, there is one thing that we still cannot find, wisdom. So point two, wisdom's unsearchable home. We see after going on for 11 verses, marveling at the human ingenuity through the example of mining, we see that in verses 12 to 19, the author makes turn pointing out the one thing that we cannot attain no matter what, wisdom. So we see in verse 12, the question is posed, where is wisdom found? Where is the place of understanding? And then the author gives us some potential answers. And we see the author address the two main ways that we humans might look for wisdom, through exploration and accumulation. First, exploration. We see that in verse 13, it states explicitly that man does not know wisdom worth, and we cannot find it anywhere in the land of the living. In verse 14, it tells us if we search the deep, if we're able to dig deep into the earth, to the very foundation of the earth, the deep will say, it's not with me. And even if we explore all of the oceans that cover 70% of the earth, which by the way, we haven't done yet, it's gonna say the same thing. It's not with me either. And this is the first way that we can mistakenly think we can find wisdom. That if we explore all of the earth, if we're informed enough, if we're educated enough, if we experience enough or know enough, the world will finally make sense. Then we can see what's really going on. Then we'll find wisdom. Then we'll understand what's really happening to us and we'll have the peace of mind that we seek. But the Bible says this is not the case. And we see that throughout history, even the most brilliant minds humanity has ever produced still did not have the peace from the wisdom they sought. Um, biologist Charles Darwin, who traveled the world and eventually came up with the theory of evolution, universally acknowledged as a brilliant man, he had serious anxiety issues to the point where he was constantly trembling and nauseous and he would even break out into hysterical crying. He even became suicidal and was unable to communicate properly to his own children. See, by the world's metrics, he has wisdom, but he certainly didn't have peace. Another example, Kurt Gödel, a brilliant mathematician, contemporary of Albert Einstein. He had severe paranoia and thought that someone was constantly trying to poison him such that he would not eat any food unless his wife cooked it. And when his wife was sick and was hospitalized for six months, he starved to death. Right? And these guys are not anomalies. There is an entire field of psychology that studies the relationship between genius and mental disorder. Not that all geniuses have mental problems, but the data seems to suggest that the people who, would expect, who we would expect to have wisdom are those who, act, uh, those who actually know more of the world and are more aware of how the world works, supposedly, 
they in fact tend to have, in general, less peace. So it seems like the Bible is on to something here. That no matter how much we know about the world, no matter how learned we are, we still don't have enough awareness about what's really happening to make sense of the tragic things that do happen to us in the broken world and to be able to be okay with it. Though we might find information through exploration, we will not find wisdom and we will not find peace. Then he continues in verse 15 to 19 to teach us that we cannot get wisdom through accumulation. We cannot buy wisdom. That even the most precious, most expensive, the prettiest and shiniest things that the world has to offer cannot buy us wisdom. Right? And wealth can be so deceiving to us in this way. Right? It makes us think that if we have it, then the world will make sense to us, or at least we can make the world make sense. Because wealth can often give us the power to put us in a position to be successful in life and to get what we want, to make things happen. If we have more money, we feel like we have more ability to control what happens to us and to those around us. With money, we can buy the freedom to live as freely and as comfortably as possible. Money, wealth, can do a lot for us. And with a lot of wealth, you can easily think that, that we've got it all figured out. But that's not really the case, is it? Take Anthony Bourdain, right? He was the host of a food show on CNN. And his job was to travel around the world and eat all of delicious food. Right? It's hard to think of a better job than he had. He had the money, the fame, the lifestyle. He could do anything he wanted, have basically anything he wanted. But in 2018, in a presidential suit, in a five-star hotel room in France, he tragically took his own life. Again, right, he is not an outlier, and we can probably think of more examples. And there are psychological studies that conclude that CEOs have doubled the rate of depression than people in the general public. And that kids uh, who are wealthy are more prone to depression and anxiety compared to middle and low-income kids. So money can buy us freedom, can buy us power, can buy us control and comfort, but it cannot fill the profound emptiness that we feel in our hearts. It cannot prevent this weight that we feel from the angst that the world gives us. No matter what we have, we still cannot make sense of the tragic things that happen to us in the world and all the suffering can endure. So money can't buy wisdom and with it alone, we'll never find peace. So wisdom is not through exploration, Exploration, searching all of the world and the knowledge that's in it. It's not through accumulation, right? gathering the treasures of the world. So then the author concludes this about wisdom in verses 20 and 22. He restates the question, where is wisdom? And it concludes in verse 21 that no living thing has it, not even the birds who has the greater, wider panoramic view of the world than we do from the skies. And he goes on further in verse 22. Right? He said before in verse 12 that it's not in the land of the living, in verse 22, he says that not even death, the next world in existence, and Abaddon, the personification of death, the angel of the bottomless pit that we see in Revelation 9, he says he's only heard rumors. Even death only hears gossip of wisdom. So even if we get taken out or opt out of this world and go to the next, the Bible says that it does not mean we'll find wisdom and somehow rest in peace because we'll no longer have to deal with the burdens of the world. Right? Death 
has only heard rumors. So humans, incredible creatures, made in the image of God, endowed with unparalleled intellect and ability, there is one thing we can find, one thing that, will that we can never buy, one thing that will never be ours no matter how hard we try or what we have. Wisdom. So where is wisdom? Point three, God's inscrutable wisdom. The final stanza of this poem finally relieves this tension. The author tells us wh where wisdom is. Verse 23 tells us that God knows where it is. And why does God know where it is? Verse 24 tells us it is because he has an infinitely higher perspective on creation than we do. God sees everything, every cell, every atom, every molecule in the universe. And the author illustrates this point in chapter, uh, verse 25-27 by describing God as this master builder, as the architect of creation who weighed out the winds, who decreed, decreed the, the rains to occur, who made way for thunder and lightning. God is the one who declared, established, and searched out creation. And when we see God finally answer Job later, in chapter 38-39, it, it is exactly this that he points out in detail. And so where was wisdom? If you read Proverbs 8, it tells us that wisdom was beside God when he created the world, like a master workman, being his delight and rejoicing before him. Now, who did John say was with God from the beginning? The one through whom all things were made and nothing was made without him. The Word. What did the Word do? He put on flesh and dwelt among men. What happened to the Word? He lived a perfect and sinless life and gave his life on the cross so that we who were once in darkness and without understanding can come into his marvelous light so that we who were once blind can now see. This is why Paul in 1 Corinthians says that Jesus Christ is the wisdom and power of God for those who are being called. And in Colossians, that in him, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. Brothers and sisters, we can never find wisdom no matter where we look. We can never buy it no matter what we have. But God, in his surpassing grace, sent wisdom to us. In other words, wisdom, this higher order of understanding what is going on with the world, is not ours through exploration or accumulation but revelation, specifically the revelation of the Son. In light of this, how do we respond to the, to the instruction that the architect of the universe gives us? In verse 28, when he says, the fear of the Lord is wisdom, and turning away from evil is understanding. See, the fear of the Lord does not simply mean that we should be terrified by God. Yes, God and not the world is what we ultimately should fear for our sin, but the fear of the Lord in its essence means that we are seeing God and treating God for who he really is, appropriately for who he is. Right? That he is the one, on the one hand, right, that he is completely on a different level from us, that he is the author and we are only characters of his story. He sees all things, made all things, knows all things, and he has absolute authority over us. We belong to him. But we have 
repeatedly disobeyed and grieved him, therefore making us completely unworthy of any favor from him, but deserving judgment. But on the other hand, he is so gracious, so loving, so merciful, that he took that very judgment we deserve upon himself on the cross so that we can see him in the fullness of his glory. That we may know him not only as judge and king, but as father and friend. And if we genuinely understand this, the only appropriate application of this truth is that we turn away from evil. Because it displeases the Lord, and because, and because it angers him when we do it, and also because our heavenly father paid such a costly price to fix our evil. Therefore, what do we do when we're going through tragedy? When we are suffering and looking for answers, how do we not spiral into despair? We look at the cross and meditate on how God turned the most tragic, ugly, unjust thing to have ever happened to the most glorious, beautiful, and loving moment in history. It is only when we understand that God, what God had done for us is it possible for us to rest in God's intention for creation. It is only through this can we not be crushed by what's happening to us and around us, but marvel at how God uses all things, even the greatest suffering, for the good of those who love him. So remember your first encounter with the cross, how it first captured your heart and you were stunned and utterly captivated by it. And then somehow when we return to it over and over again, especially in our time of need, it never gets old. In fact, it gets more beautiful every time. It continues to refresh our souls. So when we reflect on our own walks with God, the indescribable grace and mercy that he consistently and abundantly gives us in our lives though we do not deserve it. When we look back on our darkest hours, on our saddest moments, and have seen how God turned it around and used it for good and have internalized that it was the cross, the cross of Christ that made it possible for us to have our, this relationship with God, we will not despair in our present sadness and weaknesses, but we will fall on our knees to worship. And we will get how Paul feels when in the end of Romans 11, after this beautiful reflection on God's plan of salvation for us, he says, Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. For in him, through him, and to him, are all things, and to him be all the glory forever. Amen? Let's pray. Father in heaven, uh, we are truly unworthy of your Son. Uh, Lord, forgive us for searching meaning and wisdom in this life from things outside of you. We are truly grateful for the fact that you have sent your Son to enlighten us, Lord, and to drag us out of the darkness in which we dwell. Lord, in our times of need, in our times of despair, remind us that wisdom and peace comes from you alone. Direct our hearts towards you. 
Make us thirst for you and long for you, Lord, that we may be truly refreshed and we may not despair in this world that is broken and fallen. For to you be the glory forever. Amen.